Hi, my name is Sam Thiday. I'm an ex-NRL rugby league player who played 29 games for Queensland, over 300 games for my club, the Brisbane Broncos, and 32 games for Australia. He gives it to Thiday. Thiday for the line. Thiday over. Across my whole career, I've had a lot of deep and meaningful conversations with my friends, teammates, and family. But the one conversation I haven't had is the one that's really important. It's the conversation that could literally save a life. It's the conversation around organ donation. In this six-part podcast series, I'm going to be sitting down with people who have received a life-saving organ donation. You don't know when it's going to be yourself or one of your family. Yeah. You know, and it can happen any time. It was intense because, like, at 11 years old, you don't think you're going to plan your own funeral. A surgeon hand-pumped my heart for a whole hour while I got hooked up to the life support machine. I'll also get the chance to sit down and talk to people who have made the decision to donate their loved one's organs to save someone's life. Just think she's such a giving person to be able to help someone else. How does it make you feel that Georgia could help so many people? It makes me feel really proud of her. Through this tragedy, her memory is still... Uh, is still out there living in people and uh, making their lives better. And she would have been happy with that. The idea, as simple as it is, is to have people have that conversation around organ donation. Let's meet today's guest. So, my name's Christine. I'm from Melbourne in Victoria. Our next chat is with Christine. She's at home in Melbourne and you might hear some music and a little one who might pop up now and then in this podcast. This is a little bit of a different story, a story of a little girl who received an organ transplant through the perspective of her mum. Across the last four episodes, you've heard me talk about how important having that conversation is. But having that conversation is only one part of the process. Registering is the next. Donatelife.gov.au Christine, I want to jump right in and I want you to talk to us about Alexis, your daughter, the struggles that she uh, went through in her in her younger years. No, well, they started before she was born, unfortunately. So at 30 weeks, we were having a regular scan um, just to check on her growth because I was measuring a little bit on the smaller side. Um, and they found that she had no fluid left around her and her kidneys were nearly quadruple the size that they were supposed to be. Um, so it was it was a funny day because they just sent us away and said, oh, can you go call your family and find out your medical history and come back and we'll have a chat when you get back. So we went and checked all of our family history. No one had anything from either sides of our family. And we got back to the hospital about an hour later. At this point, we hadn't been told anything. Um, and they took myself in for an ultrasound of my kidneys. And then they took my husband in for an ultrasound of his kidneys. And then they took us into a room and said, look, it looks like your daughter's got what's called autosomal recessive polycystic kidney disease, Um, which when it's this advanced, it's usually incompatible with life. So if she was to survive, she'd only have a one to 3% chance of survival. So we suggest at this point you terminate. This was at 30 weeks, which was not an option for us at all. For many people it would be, don't get me wrong, what we went through, I wouldn't wish on anybody. Um, but for us, it wasn't an option. So we then went down the path of, okay, well, what happens next? Um, they suggested comfort care when she was born. So she'd essentially be handed to me and then I would just hold her until she passed away. Or we could elect to intervene 
and try intubation and go from there because initially the biggest deal was not her kidneys, it was her lungs. Yeah. So because she's got no fluid, that's what you develop lungs with by practice breathing and stuff in utero. So because she didn't have any of that, her lungs hadn't developed. So that was the biggest issue at the start. It wasn't even the kidneys that were the big problem, it was the lungs. So after she was born, there wasn't any noise, there was no crying, which wasn't particularly reassuring. Um, but they did say they managed to get a tube down her throat to intubate her, which was a big step. They didn't think her lungs would even be developed enough to accept a tube. So they quickly held her up and showed me and whisked her away to, to the NICU, um, where I saw her briefly for five minutes, about two hours later. Um, but they were working on her at the time. She was very unstable. So we went to my room and I didn't see her again until the morning. And the doctors came in and said, look, we don't think she's going to last. You should get everyone in to say their goodbyes. A couple of things I want to unpack here. Um, you, you mentioned comfort care. Um, how were you at that point in time when the, the doctors were suggesting that? Uh, it, was, it was all such a whirlwind. I think I was a little bit numb, to be honest with you. There was no... There was no emotion in it at all. I just kind of sat there staring at them, as did my husband. We couldn't really understand what they were saying. We had just been sent away to to find out about family history and stuff, and then suddenly they were talking about comfort care and her passing away and, you know, dialysis and all these things that had never even come into the picture. So initially there was there was nothing. We were just in complete shock, but... It still wasn't an option. We kind of went down the, we, our mindset was if she was prepared to fight and she could get through that initial period, then we would fight with her, but we were going to give her a chance. How are you feeling physically, emotionally? Uh, because giving birth is is a, is a, a, a physical thing as well. Uh, physically, I felt like I'd been hit by a Mack truck. <laughs> um, I think my mind was reeling. Um, and then, yeah, we got to the next day and they said that we should call everyone. So I was on my phone and my husband was on his phone and most of our family wasn't in Melbourne. You know, we had family in Bendigo, in Gippsland, um, South Australia. So we had people everywhere that we had to try and get in to say their goodbyes. We hadn't really processed that that's what we're actually doing. We were calling people to come and say goodbye to our daughter that was going to pass away and it didn't sink in until kind of after we made those phone calls and we just sat outside the hospital and just cried like we didn't know we didn't know what to do uh alexis being the fighter that she is um she hangs in there she goes through a fair few things uh throughout that period talk us through some of the stuff that she had to battle through to even get to that point so when we got to the children she had to have an operation because her kidneys were so big and her lungs were so compromised already um her kidneys weren't functioning, so she hadn't produced any urine whatsoever in the time from she was born to the time that we got to the children's hospital. So she had a lot of extra fluid in her body. Um, so the first thing that we had to do was establish a way to get the fluid out of her so they could start to manage the blood pressure um, as well as the, the lungs because the fluid wasn't helping those. It was just a big cascade of issues. So initially she went in for an operation to have one of her kidneys removed um, they weren't working anyway, so it was a bid to make some space for her lungs to develop. The prognosis for that surgery was very poor. They didn't expect her to make it off the table. So that was a really tough, tough day. Um, we had all the family at the children's just 
sitting down there living off coffee waiting for word um but she did pull through as she always did um and they managed to start a volume of 10 mils at a time of that fluid going into her abdomen to try and pull additional fluid off so by this point she was 10 or 11 weeks we managed to get her off the ventilators and onto CPAP so her breathing started to stabilize which was great but during that time she'd also ended up with an infection somewhere we're not quite sure where but they had to treat her with the strongest antibiotics they possibly could um, being gentamicin and one of the side effects of gentamicin albeit rare um, is hearing loss and because she couldn't clear that drug properly despite the fact that she really needed it she ended up deaf but in the grand scheme of things you know it was it was nothing at the time she was still in hospital she was about four months old still an inpatient hadn't been home yet um she needed to get onto a machine for her dialysis in order to be able to come home um and it needed to only be overnight we weren't there yet so by about six months old um, we managed to get onto that machine um, and finally get her home for the first time, which was bliss. So Alexis sounds like an absolute trooper. She went through so much at, at a young age. You kind of knew and were aware that she needed to have uh, a kidney transplant at some point in time. When did you start looking into yourself and your and your husband uh, to donating a, a kidney? So we knew that she would need a kidney as soon as possible. Her kidneys were completely non-functional. There was nothing that her body was doing on its own um, that a kidney would normally do. It was all the dialysis. So we knew straight away that she would need a kidney, but we also knew that she'd have to get to at least 10 kilos in order to receive an adult kidney. Um, Because of the kidney failure, she also had failure to thrive. She had never eaten orally. Um, Even looking at food made her vomit, which was really quite sad. So she was fed through a nasogastric tube. I mean, it wasn't until she was about two and a half that she finally hit that 10 kilo mark. And we actually initially went on the deceased donor list, which was so exciting. That day we were absolutely ecstatic. And it's funny, as soon as you're activated on that list, you you expect to receive a phone call, but it doesn't work that way. There's, there's so much waiting. Um, and we were waiting for about, I think it was 10 or 11 months before her health was at a point where she was healthy enough to receive a kidney but if we waited much longer she was going to start to go downhill again everything kind of started just going a little bit funny she was still really well in herself she was such a happy kid we didn't really have any other live donors um, in the mix and i always wanted to be a donor so they started testing me they didn't like the idea of it i was only it's only 27 at this point in time so they weren't a fan of taking a kidney from someone so young because you know even if my other kidney is perfect i've still got an entire life to live um with a single kidney but people do that all the time and that was my thing you know if people are born with one kidney why is it a big deal so they agreed to test me and have me as a backup um so i went through all the testing and everything was great we had actually had a surgery date set because we had decided yes they would accept my kidney but then the final cross match came back positive um and that wiped me out i couldn't be a compatible donor anymore because her body would then react to my kidney and is that the point you then uh, registered on the australian paired kidney exchange yes yes it was so um we were absolutely shattered at that point because we'd had the surgery date set and nothing could go ahead so 
the next option was, well, if you still want to be a donor, you can go through the paired kidney exchange. So that was another whole workup. Christine wasn't able to donate her kidney to her daughter. So she went on to something called the Australian Paired Kidney Exchange. I'm an ex-NRL football player, so it's a bit complicated for me. So let's have Christine explain. (laughs) So the easiest way that I can explain it is it is a swap. So you have a loved one and someone who needs a kidney and those two people are not compatible. And then you have another lot of people who's in the same situation. They want to donate, but they're not compatible with the person that needs it. So we swap. My healthy kidney goes to their loved one that needs a kidney and their loved one's healthy kidney goes to my daughter who needs a kidney. So it's a direct swap between two families. It becomes a little bit more complicated when you add additional people into that chain, but it's still essentially the same concept. Everyone's just swapping um, to the next person who needs it because their loved one can't do it directly. And it's all anonymous. All anonymous, yeah. Yeah, so even, you know, to the point where when we're in surgery, um, the the surgeons are all on the phone at the same time and all the donors have to go under anaesthetic um, at exactly the same time to make sure that no one, you know, ha- has second thoughts last minute or anything like that. This episode really hit home because I hadn't had the conversation myself. So I went home and had that tough conversation with my wife and two young daughters. The conversation doesn't have to be scary. It's not all doom and gloom. It can be as simple as saying, we can help other people out by donating our tissue and organs when we pass. Donatelife.gov.au Hi, I'm Robert DaCosta and I'm the Medical Director of Donate Life Victoria. Can you please explain uh, for an an ex-football player what your job entails? Well, primarily I'm a doctor. I'm an intensive care doctor and... Um, when we think about donation um, and deceased donation in particular, um, that really happens to patients who are dying in intensive care units. So that's how my interest um, was first developed in the area. Um, Donate Life is a government-funded um, body that co- coordinates donation for transplantation. So um, we have staff that are within hospitals We'll travel to other hospitals as well to meet with potential donor families, talk to them about donation, and then support the uh, families and the donor through that process. Now, it's my understanding that there's there's two teams. There's your team, which uh, they look after the donors, and then there's another team that looks after the recipients. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's an important, um, I guess, ethical... Uh, requirement of the way we practice that we have a team um, solely to support the um, donor and their and their family and um, and the intensive care uh, unit where they generally in intensive care but could be an emergency department for example um, support the uh, family the patient the staff there um, to the point where there is a uh, an operation where um, organs are retrieved for transplantation somewhere else generally. Um, and then there is a process where uh, these precious uh, organs, these precious gifts are handed over to a transplant team who looks after a particular recipient or many recipients uh, in some cases. And um, 
they take the role on of looking after those recipients. Um, so they're quite separate parts of the same uh, amazing, it, it truly is amazing every time I think about it, that, that this, uh, this is possible, but it is and, it's, uh, and it makes a difference to so many people's lives. How do we start that conversation with our friends and our families to let them know that these are my wishes and to even know and understand their wishes as well? Yeah. Um, I think um, you've alluded to the, 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 um, the, the conversations that us as health professionals have with families um, often on the most difficult, most challenging day that they have ever experienced or they will ever experience. Um, and to then have um, a conversation about uh, something else, which is very, very important, as we know, as we've just talked about, organ donation is you know, truly life-saving. Um, but to talk to them for the first time perhaps about that and they never knew what their loved one would have wanted, it just makes that decision for them uh, all that much harder. Whereas if we've had that conversation with our loved ones um, on an ordinary day where we just you know, say, look, this is what I'd like to do if I was ever in that situation, and I know it's the chances of me ever being a situation where, well, being an organ donor is going to be extremely uncommon. We're talking about 1% to 2% of deaths that occur in hospital. Um, so really uncommon that, that people are medically in the, in the position where they can donate organs. But imagine if all those people had, you know, all of us had had a conversation with our loved ones, had gone on the Australian Organ Donor Register and registered our, our decision to be a donor. It's going to be so much easier for our family on, on that horrible day. When they, you know, when they're losing, uh, losing someone they love dearly. For the most part, I think it was just we were just focusing on the end game. There was no focusing on, you know, our mental health or anything like that. We had, you know, a really lovely support network. We had our um, family around whenever we needed them, which was beautiful. Um, the hospital was always fantastic if there was ever a concern, regardless of the day, time, night, whatever. Um, we could call them with any questions, which was great. Um, I'd also had another another daughter in that period of time as well. Um, Elena, I had her when Alexis was about 19 months through her really stable period, which was beautiful. Um, and watching them together was just it gave Alexis so much drive. She was quite um, restricted in what she could do and watching her sister gave her a lot of, a lot of motivation. And How were you when you fell pregnant the second time? Uh, very anxious. Yeah. <laughs> it's um, being a genetic condition, there's a 25% chance that any child that I have uh, will have the same condition as Alexis. Um, so we had a lot of genetic testing and everything prior to um, having Elena and all the rest of it. And thankfully she she is a carrier of the condition, but she obviously doesn't express it, which was amazing. But that first that first 17 weeks of pregnancy, not knowing whether or not, you know, you're gonna be in the same situation all over again, or what you would do if you were in the same situation all over again. You know, even have had, a, I've had, you know, two other children since then as well. Each time is different. If someone was to say, would you do it all again? I don't, I, I don't fully know, and I don't think I would know until it came to the crunch. Uh, I definitely see uh, Alexis as a superhero. Uh, yeah, yeah me all, too. <laughs> all the stuff that she's had to go through. But yourself, do you see yourself as a superhero? Essentially, 
you've given someone one of your kidneys and now they get to live and fulfill their life I don't I don't I just I honestly don't see it as anything um, anything that most other people wouldn't do if they're in the same situation um, if I've given someone at least a little bit of what someone gave Alexis I'm over the moon by that yeah um, I just hope it's all worked out for the other person, as it has with Alexis. Um, you know, it hasn't been without bumps, but that kidney that she's got has just been an absolute champ. It hasn't faulted her, touch wood, hasn't faulted her once. We've had a few other hiccups along the way, but in terms of that kidney, it's it's done amazing things for her. So if I've done even a little bit of that for someone else, I'm over the moon. Now, uh, you're living your life with one kidney. What does that mean for you? There's no restrictions on your life or anything like that? No, no, no restrictions whatsoever. I see my nephrologist every 12 months um, just to get some bloods done. They keep an eye on my blood pressure. But as a whole, my kidney is completely fine. It has grown. Um, they tend to, once you remove a kidney, your the kidney that's left tends to get a little bit bigger because it's trying to compensate and make up for the work that the other one used to do. Um, but as a whole, no, nothing... Well, you're definitely uh, paving the way at the moment, uh, sharing your story. How can we normalise this conversation uh, within the Australian community? Look, I think it comes down to talking to your family about it is the most important thing. Like, it's it's not a pleasant conversation to have. It's, you know, it's a... A lot of people would see it as a morbid conversation to have. But, but ultimately, your family needs to know what you want as well. Um, because when it comes to the crunch, if you're in a situation where you can donate, you're not gonna be able to wake up and say, yep, please take it. It comes down to your family and what they decide. And they can ultimately override your wishes. If they, they feel that they're not sure what you would have wanted, they can just say no. So it's really important that the families are included um, in any discussions had around organ donation. Now, being an organ donor yourself and having a daughter who's received one, have you had this conversation in your house? Yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah, everyone in our house has a little pink card in our wallet um, and everyone in our house knows exactly what each other wants. So, yeah, yeah. Actually, not just in our house, in our extended family too. So, yeah, those conversations were had quite early in the piece. Nice. And admittedly, we didn't see how important it was until we were in it either. So... Yeah, unfortunately, it took that to make us aware as well. Alexis, how is she now? She is a force to be reckoned with. <laughs> She's um, an absolute machine. She's uh, in grade four at school now. We had to hold her back a year because she got transplanted in the year that she was supposed to start kinder. Um, and she was so immunocompromised for a while. We just kept her out of kinder that year and started fresh the next year. So she's a year behind what she's supposed to be. Yep. Um, but it's kind of beautiful because she gets to, she started school with her, her younger sister as well. So they're gone through school together in the same grade. So they're both in grade four. Um, and she's an absolute, absolute machine. She's incredible. She's so driven. She's so happy. She's so active. We're sharing these stories of heartache and hope to show you how important organ and tissue donation is. It only takes a minute to register, and that 60 seconds could save someone's life. To register yourself, head to donatelife.gov.au.
chat to your family, have the morbid conversation, have make it less morbid, make it, you know, have it around the dinner table, have it have it wherever. Don't just have the card in your wallet. Um, I wish it was enough. It's not. Of course, that's important. You've got that's the first step. You've got to do that. But have the conversation with your family. If it's something that you want to do, um, make it known that that's what you want to do because it's really important when it comes to the crunch that your family's on the same page that you are. Um, it makes a huge, huge difference to people's lives who are waiting on that list. The weight on that list is just, it's an awful weight. Every phone call, every email, every, every everything, you're, you're on edge, you're hypervigilant, you don't know what the call's gonna be. Um, and if, you can, if we can decrease that weight even a little bit by getting more donors on board, then that's gonna benefit people as well. Thank you very much for that. Really appreciate uh, you sharing your story today. No worries. Thank you for listening. I'm Sam Thide, and I will see you next time on A Gift Worth Giving.